Ah, some of you probably really like this series. Some of you probably don't. <laughs> hey, it's cool. It's cool. This is a unique series, and it actually has led to a unique kind of message. This isn't exactly, turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to study verses 1 through 12. We're going to share some funny stories, find some insightful biblical principles. We're going to apply them to our lives and, and leave. That's, that's how we would normally approach this time. But, but we've decided to give a portion of the summer to processing some sticky questions, some tricky questions. And these are questions that you gave us a couple of months ago. And here's what I like about just the very fact that we're doing this. One, it, it acknowledges that we have questions. That's, that's almost subversive to platform among people who are known by outsiders for their answers. The fact that we, well, there's some things that are kind of confusing and that we're not sure about. And that's, that's a humble step and, and one that I think leads to honest uh, discovery and study. And there's nothing bad about that. Uh, so it's good that we have questions, but we also need to remind ourselves that we're here today because we have some answers as well, right? You're here and not in wherever else you could be because of some things that you have found to be true. And so we, we gather with those two realities kind of intention. As was said at the beginning of the series, some of these questions and their answer it's just going to lead to more questions. Uh, they're just tricky. And the more you unpack them, the more a little, oh, what about this and what about that? But some of the questions don't lead to more questions. They just lead to really solid answers. And that's nice. This is one of those weeks. A couple things that I want to mention before we dive into the particular question of the week. Today's question is, how did we get the books in our Bible? This is a great question. And, uh, but before we dive into it, I want to hit three points, and then we'll get there. The first is, this may not be a particularly compelling question for you. Uh, you may have never lost sleep over this issue. This series is for us. That's one part of it, but it's not the whole part of it. Because the reality is that you and I are called to make disciples, right? Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've taken his words to be true, if you've surrendered your life to him, if you've joined him in what he's doing in the world, then that by definition means that you are making disciples. You are helping other people live and follow Jesus. Well, to do that well, we need to be, be uh, aware of the most common objections people have to living and, and following Jesus. And we need to come up... No, we, need, we need to become conversant with the most coherent answers to those most common objections. So part of this series is for us. But the other part is for someone you know who's not here today. Who currently is kind of hung up on some of these. But they're not here. And they probably won't be for a while. But they know you and they trust you and they have history with you. And so... Even though we trust the almighty Google to answer just about everything, there's a real sense that you, scary sometimes, are more trustworthy than Google because 
you're a person and they know you and they know you to not be crazy and they know you to be pretty rational in most areas of your life. And so there's this powerful truth that you could be the closest thing this person will ever get to taking seriously some things they may have very easily written off from a distance. It's easy with our faith to caricature it from a distance, take a couple bad apples, write up, write off the whole basket, and, uh, and, and kind of have a couple, three or four arguments that you kind of throw up, you think they're all idiots, and, and, uh, but when you interact with one and you find that to be different, then you're kind of like, hmm, I, uh, I have to reconcile this. And so please listen today. There's going to be a lot of information today and in other issues like this because you could be studying for someone else. The next thing I wanted to say, too, is uh, sometimes when people ask us tricky questions about our faith, we like to give a certain answer. I'll admit it. I'm including myself in this. Sometimes... When you just get um, a, tough answer, a tough question, there's something we say. Can you think of what I'm... It really answers any question you don't know the answer to. That's why it's so tempting. Do you know what it is? You just need to have faith. Have you been there? Ugh. I think the enemy loves that answer, loves it, loves it. And here's the, here's the danger. Here's why we do it, and here's what it does. The reason why we do it is because we get confronted with some uh, <clears throat> either aggressive or legitimate question about our faith that we don't have a great answer for in the moment. And so you're just like feeling the pressure that the whole weight of this thing that you've built your life around is about to come tumbling down. And that, you can't have that. You can't lose face. And so it's just like five, four, three, oh, ding. You just need to have faith, man. You know? Just, that's why we call it faith. Yes. <laughs> Any other questions? <clears throat> the reason why it's dangerous, why we do it, is one, because it technically answers the question. It puts the ball back in their court. And it takes the attention off us. It's like, huh, what are you going to do with that? So you feel like you answered the question. And, and B, the other reason why we do this is because technically, at the end of the day, we do call this a faith tradition. We do call it the Christian faith, faith in Jesus. And so we're like minutely accurate that it does require faith. But I would make the case that yes, following Jesus requires faith because at the end of the day, God is still invisible. But the faith component, I think, comes much later in the conversation and in the inquiry than, than when we often pull the card. For a lot of the questions that people are asking, you don't need faith. You need reason. You need logic. You need history. And you need facts. And, and that's kind of a slap in the face to the actual validity inaccuracy and historicity of the Christian faith to convey at that moment that that's the collectively the best answer we have because it's, it's not. And they deserve better. And so here's what it does to them. They either have two things. One, <clears throat> some issues with the church or the Christian faith that are emotional or personal, but they have a couple front questions 
that aren't the real issue, but that keep it, you know, arm's length away, that keep the conversation from getting any closer. And so they have a couple of these, or they actually often have just a real like, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and this always sounds weird to me, and you really believe that? And when we answer, you just need to have faith, does that allow their curiosity to keep going, or does that kind of end the conversation? It's a conversation killer. Because they're the ones looking at us going, you're the one who's been in church for 40 years. I honestly kind of trust your answer. And so if you're the one who goes to all these Bible studies and does all this stuff, if I ask you, what about this? And, and you just say, on behalf of everyone, you just need to have faith. And you go, oh, there really must not be a better answer than that. I feel justified in my unbelief and in my skepticism. Because that's not even that like, that sh there should be able to be an answer to that, but that's what you gave me. And so they feel justified when in actuality, when confronted with the truth regarding many of the answers they seek, I think some would feel foolish in their unbelief. So I think in, instead, the answer, I don't know, is profoundly humble and honest and helpful. Because that person hasn't closed necessarily that issue in their heart. And maybe they'll ask someone else. or Maybe they'll pursue them. Or maybe we can connect them. So I want to commit to that. I, I hope you can commit to that. That we can be placed in people that know their things that we haven't maybe wrestled with to the degree they are. And we're not the best person to, to address that. But, but that there is someone or there is some place. The reality is that many of the questions about faith are strong are reliable, so strong, in fact, that some of the most rational, ridiculously intellectually gifted people find their way to the historical person of Jesus, the cross and the empty tomb and the documents surrounding this. And they find that the way in which Jesus spoke of life and truth so intellectually coherent and satisfying that they abandon all previously held notions of life and how the world works and surrender to the person of Jesus. This happens. It's this mixture of God's pursuit of everyone, not wanting anyone to perish, his fingerprints all over our lives, evidence most explicitly in him sending Jesus to, to pay the penalty, to remove any possible barrier, his pursuit of our lives, the brokenness of this world that shows itself to be bankrupt in crises and at particular moments, and then the, the validity, the, the airtight way that Christianity speaks to the universe and can answer all of life's rational and moral problems. And so the combination of these for genuine seekers again and again and again has turned skeptics into believers. And so if you're ever like me where you've been kind of bashful, and hoping it doesn't come up in certain settings that you are an evangelical Christian or that you believe the Bible to be true and authoritative and you'd rather just talk about the ducks. Don't be. My study of this only confirmed, it surprised me, the degree to which these, these arguments that surround the question of the Bible are ridiculously strong. We don't need to be bashful, embarrassed. In fact, I think we need to out ourselves. I think we need to 
come out of the closet, so to speak, as, yes, people who really believe the Bible is true, because there's many people that don't know someone they respect who does. And simply by outing yourself and being like, when, when, when you think of that group of the world, make sure and include me in that. And, the, and they'll have a hard time with that. And then when those questions arise or when crisis happens, they'll be maybe comfortable and confident to, to go to you. So may we be confident in and committed to the word of God as we find it. But let's unpack it a little bit more to see why we can. Of all the questions that were asked, no question was asked more than the ones about the Bible. No question got two weeks this summer, but the Bible did. And the reason is this. All 9,000 opinions we have about the world that we attribute to the Bible, they all rise and fall on the Bible. Every single one of them rises and falls on the accuracy and the authority of the Bible. So there is no prior starting point in any conversation about what we believe in this. We can talk about what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about sin, but anything that we would use to define what we believe, we would get from this, which has yet to be established. And so this is the starting point. So it all rises and falls on this. That combines with the fact that there's an increasing skepticism about books from antiquity that have an authoritative role in our life. There's a healthy skepticism, I would even say, about just being handed down books that are, tell you what to do. And so in this postmodern era, there's a very slow reluctance to just take our word for it, that this book is different than any other book. We're skeptical about people using power and language to manipulate and exert an agenda over us. And so many people are fine just kind of writing it off. We've lost that collective consciousness as a culture that gives the Bible a certain level of credible authority. Those days are done when you could just kind of like speak to the Bible and it kind of had this trump card effect. So we don't need to grieve that too bad. I think some people just kind of were implied believers and implied uh, Christ followers because it didn't, it didn't cost you anything. You didn't have to stand for anything because everyone kind of agreed to it to a certain extent. But today people aren't so sure. And so, absolute truth, questions of can we know history are very important to spend time discussing, especially when the Bible stands up so well to a thorough shakedown. All right, let's get to the question. Canon. Canon is the word we use to describe those that meet a certain criteria and are found in our Bible. 66 books meet this criteria. They're divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament... To Jews, is called the Hebrew Bible. This is a less contested uh, set of books because we're not the only ones that hold to it or would call it Scripture. So, canon is the word. It's a Greek word meaning read, and it's meant to connote that sense of like a, a standard, like a yard, a measuring amount, and that if it met it, it's canonized, and if it's not, it, it kind of falls short. Uh, so, the Old Testament is 39 books, and this was, they believe, established by about 150 B.C. Josephus 
in the late, you know, 60s, 70s AD, a historian, a non-Christian, wrote about the fact that the, in the temple uh, was a Hebrew scriptures. And then around the year 450 BC, Ezra, we know the name Ezra, that sounds familiar. Ezra was a man who, the, the, the Jews had been exiled, so they weren't in their homeland. The Babylonian Empire had finally fallen. They came back and Ezra brought people back to the word. And he gathered the writings of Moses and the prophets that hadn't been read for a long time. And he began to kind of organize them into the scriptures. So books in the Old Testament, there's, th there's three categories. The historical books, the law, and the prophets. So a prophet was a role that was very recognized. It was a role that not many aspired to because if you were believed to speak the words of God to people in real life moments. And if anything you said didn't happen, you would be killed. It was just a way of taking it very seriously. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to be a prophet when I grow up. No, be a fireman. <laughs> Job security. Uh, so most of, the, most of the Hebrew Bible books, Moses included, are written by prophets. And so it's, it's easy to elevate those to a level because they believe that God spoke through them. So there's not a lot of contention about that. Jesus speaks, uh, references many books of the Old Bible and speaks about the scriptures many times in the sense of that's a, a noun. It's a group of books that's already been agreed upon. It's in the temple, kind of end of discussion. I find it interesting that the more that archaeological finds unearth biblical and historical fragments, does the case for the Bible increase or weaken? It increases. Regardless of what particular ways it increases, it's just interesting from a 30,000 feet perspective that the more we learn, the stronger the case gets. That the, everything, you know, that the Bible is authoritative? No. That you'll like the content? No. But that the book as we have it today is accurate to when it was originally written. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls were this huge, epic find. Because the oldest known fragments of the Old Testament prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls were written 1,400 years after the events that they described. Now, the reason that we place such confidence in them is because as, as 14 years and after, there's incredible accuracy and reliability among the different texts. So they agree with each other. There's no differences between them. So you, you interpret back this sense of there's no way you could have, you know, 2,000 copies that all say the same thing from periods of history that line up with other historians that wrote about times, you know, listed in here. And so you have a high sense of confidence using the test that we use to measure books of antiquity. But when this shepherd boy, about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, was looking for a lost sheep, he was wandering near the caves of Qumran. And he saw a hole and in the side of the mountain, and he threw a rock in it, hoping that he would hear his sheep get hit and go, Mah. Oh, very sophisticated. Instead, he heard clay pots smash and he's like hmm, wonder where my goat is and what was that so he gets his friends they come over and they find clay pot after clay pot after clay pot fragments of all but eight books of the old testament 
the entire book of Isaiah, the entire complete book of Isaiah, which has dozens of prophecies about the person of Jesus that he fulfilled, that were written 1,000 years earlier than the oldest Old Testament documents before that point. 1,000 years earlier. These documents were written in 68 B.C., it's believed. Secular historians date them then. They believe they were placed in the caves in 100 A.D. These were written, the whole book of Isaiah, written before the time of Jesus, prophesying about who he would be, where he would come from, how he would die, that he would rise again. So it's just interesting that this gets stronger as the years go by. What about the New Testament? The New Testament has 27 books that fall into essentially three or four categories. There's the Gospels, four biographies of Jesus written by eyewitnesses or friends of apostles, uh, Acts of the Apostles, a historical book. The rest were letters written to churches from apostles or church leaders. And then the last is the Revelation, a, uh, a book about the end times. So how did these books get into the canon? How did they pass the test? When was that decided? Was it a group of six men who's, who had an agenda and said arbitrarily no to those and yes to these? And, and how did that work? The reality is that the process of choosing the books in the canon was uh, very organic. The answer is quite simple. In, by the year 397 AD, there was a formal council to officially recognize the 27 books of the New Testament as scriptural and authoritative. But they would say that that was only officially recognizing what everyone already knew. That was not establishing anything new. The reality is that these letters, which were passed around to this church movement, which was just exploding all over the place, letters would get passed from church to church to church. And here's what they say. The wide circulation of the New Testament and the sheer number of churches involved in reading and propagating it acted as a protection against forgery and fraud. As any interloper would have had to convince large numbers of people across a vast geographical area. Later on it says, the recognition of the books of the New Testament as scriptural was overwhelmingly a natural process, not a matter of ecclesiastical regulation. The core of the New Testament was accepted so early that subsequent rulings do no more than recognize the obvious. So by 150 A.D., it's believed that the 27 books had been agreed upon as Scripture. In hindsight, they gave a test, five tests, that determined whether a book qualified. But this wasn't to decide which books were in. This was to keep any more books from coming in. That's what happened in the 4th century. And these were the tests. Was the book apostolic? Was it written by an apostle? An apostle is different than a disciple. We'd call ourselves disciple, an apprentice in the way of Jesus. But an apostle was an eyewitness. Okay, if we're talking about Jesus, we've got to give priority to eyewitness people. They're speaking about things they actually saw. So was the book written by an apostle? That's a big bar to jump over. Second, is it written in the first century? This immediately takes the ground away from books that would show up later on the scene and try to say that this was wrong and that's not really how it happened. Because by definition, they happened so much 
longer after the fact that their reliability is inherently in question. Is the book orthodox? This is a question that was applied specifically to Hebrews because the, the authorship of Hebrews is unknown. We don't know who she was. So, uh, <clears throat> or he. But uh, the question with Hebrews was, does this book speak in alignment with the rest of Scripture? Is the sense that this agrees with it? We know when it surfaced. We, we believe that it was from Paul or, or from one of the apostles. Is it orthodox? Yes. Is the book universally accepted? As books and letters would get passed around, there was just this natural organic process of determining, no, that's, that, that's from so-and-so. They made that up. Don't pass that one on. That's a forgery. Paul seems to say, look, I write this with my own hand. It was this inherent get, you know, checks and balances as people did this. I'm, I'm hesitant to bring this up because I know some people won't like this, but there's the sense that the canonization of the New Testament was kind of like Wikipedia. And some of you aren't going to like that, and that's fine, and some of you are. Wikipedia is this interesting thing where it's governed by the people. And yet an independent study found that the team of few experts who wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica, had, that contained more errors than the anyone can write Wikipedia. And it was just this interesting, like, sociological phenomenon of, wow, when people have more ownership in the process, there's more checks and balances, and it actually increasingly becomes accurate. And so people have always said, oh, just go in there and change it. Yeah, try that. See how that goes for you. In about 0.8 seconds, it will be, you know, it will be back to what society as the whole agrees. So in some senses, that makes us nervous, because what if we all change our mind about something? Then just history changes. These were eyewitnesses. These were historical events that happened in the lifetimes of the people involved. And adhering to these truths and passing these truths often meant death. So no, there wasn't this sense that there was a fun fact of, of making up things. This cost people everything. To commit, to say Jesus was Lord. To pass writings that were subversive to the governments at the time. People collectively agreed upon which were authoritative, which were accepted. And so in that sense, it wasn't three men in a room. It was the early church. As it exploded, they were able to, to kind of guess and check and, and confirm what was and what wasn't. So it's at this point when I would say, if you don't like the Bible as we find it, what would be acceptable? You cannot like the content of the Bible. That's totally fine. But to imply that you have to kind of be half-brained dimwit to believe a book that old that has some supernatural things in it, I would say, what, what would it take to convince you? So the fact that it's a hundred to a thousand times more accurate according to the test we use to measure books of antiquity, is that enough? The fact that we have 24,000 copies, manuscripts, fragments of the New Testament written 40 years after the events actually occurred. Like, would 50,000 be more convincing? Would 20 years after the event be more convincing? Would you prefer a book that one person wrote by themselves in their basement? 
Would that be more trustworthy? Or do you like the fact that God used more than 40 authors from different walks of life on three different continents over a 1,400-year period in a couple languages that piece together tell a single story from beginning to end that line up with actual events written by historians at that time? Is there any book from antiquity that you would take seriously? Or is this just, you wouldn't believe anything? That's fine. You can land there. But where you can't land is this, frankly, silly notion that this book was made up along the way. It's changed a lot over the years. And it's just something a group of closed-minded people cling to to push their agenda up the field. It couldn't be farther from the truth. I think the only natural response to this is, is, is a real fork in the road kind of a moment. We either take the Bible at face value for the significant way it's been preserved and translated and handed down. Can you believe that 2,000 years after this happened, we have nothing in the world as reliable as this book about anything? It's in our language, language we can understand on the other side of the world, 99.9% accurate to the original writings You either, you either build your life around it, you either dive in, soak it in, study it up, or you just choose to walk away. Both of those make more sense than saying this thing's a joke. So it's my hope that these two weeks of unpacking where we got this book has led to an increased confidence in and commitment to the Word of God. I easily and naturally and comfortably come under the authority that it has. And I find that the more time I spend in it, I become increasingly the, the kind of person I want to be. And I've experienced God meet me in the pages of it in ways that he hasn't in any other piece of writing. So I think worship at this moment is appropriate a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness for the people who lost their lives translating the Bible into common language, reproducing the Bible, making it available to, to peasants and, and normal people at times in church history when they believed it was illegal against the law for anyone to read the Bible on their own without the help of a priest. And here we have it, plenty, almost taken for granted. God is good. And he wanted us to know him in a way we could trust and build our lives around. And his will was accomplished in giving us this word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you kept this book safe for us. No, we don't worship a book we don't put a book above all else. We put the person that we read about in the book above all else. And we join a stream of people for centuries 
that have found life and hope and forgiveness and freedom and redemption. And the person of Jesus is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And for that, we say thank you. Not everyone in the world has a copy of this. Not everyone in the world can read it freely. But we can. And may our lives in interaction with it reflect our gratitude and the significance of the words found in it. We love you. We worship you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in a way that allows you to be found. May we seek you. May we follow you all the days of our life, confident and humble that you are who you say you are. Has passed down to us.